Our sermon scripture this morning comes from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, which can be found on page 1021 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. We might be able to tell from my voice that I am battling a little bit of a cold, and ironically, my voice was fine until this morning, so hopefully I don't completely lose it. Um, But let's open with a quick word of prayer. Father, may you speak to us from your word. May it be the the, the double-edged sword that can divide the thoughts and hearts of humanity. May you open us to yourself, remove what is not worthy of you, that we might love you all the more. Pray this in the name of the blessed Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, the Savior of all mankind. Amen. I'm going to start by telling you a story. A long time ago, in a country far, far away, there lived a young prince. He was called Sakamuni. Sakamuni lived a very sheltered existence. His father was a king. He did not allow Sakamuni to leave the palace. And the reason is because there had been a prophecy over Sakamuni's birth. And the prophet said this baby would either grow up to be a great king or a great religious leader. And his father, being a king, wanted an heir. And so he was determined that his son would be a great king. And so he did not allow him to have any exposure to religion or anything that might uh, point him towards religion. And so Sakamuni was a young man before he was allowed out of the palace, and he was riding a chariot, he was actually being driven, and he saw an old man. And he'd never seen an old man or woman before. Again, his father had kept him completely sheltered. And so he asked the chariot driver, why is this man so frail? And the chariot driver explained, well, everyone, as they get old, they grow frail. That shocked Sakamuni. They kept driving, and next he saw a man suffering from a disease. And again, he'd never seen this before. And it shook him to his core to see someone suffering in that kind of a way. And then finally, he saw a dead body. That was the first time he'd considered death. And again, it shook Sakamuni. He didn't know what to make of it. And then finally, the last thing he saw was a wandering aesthetic, a monk, And when he stopped to talk to this monk, the monk told him he had dedicated his life to finding the cause of suffering. Sakamuni finished his drive, went back to the palace, but he was changed. He couldn't go back to the walls of palace life. He had seen too much, and so that night he fled and dedicated his life to likewise finding the cause of suffering. Another name for Sakamuni, which you may know of, is Siddhartha Gautama, or the Buddha, who founded Buddhism. And according to, again, Buddhist teaching, later in his life, he was sitting under a Bodhi tree and he received enlightenment. The Buddha literally means the enlightened one. And the enlightenment uh, involved four noble truths about suffering. 
The first truth is that suffering is an inescapable part of human life. Just part of what it means to be human. Second, the cause of suffering is desire. Specifically, trying to find satisfaction in things that are unable to satisfy. Third, the way to end suffering is to renounce desire. If we can tame our desires, we can tame suffering. And then the fourth noble truth, which he received through this enlightenment, is that you can renounce desire through an eightfold path, which lays out a way to live that allows us to renounce desire. And by the way, I didn't know this, but mindfulness is one of those steps. America's had a really interesting infiltration of, of Buddhism through kind of countercultural movements. So here people talk about mindfulness. That's a Buddhist concept. I didn't know that. But when finally, the goal is that when desire is tamed, or better yet, when it's eradicated, a person can escape the endless wanderings of life, or what's called karma. Now, the reason I'm reading this to you is that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, he did get something very right. Desire brings suffering. Loving something brings suffering. But Christianity nuances that a little bit. The problem, according to Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, is not desire and love in and of itself. It's when we love and desire the wrong things. That's what brings suffering. Most ultimately, when Adam and Eve, uh, they decided that they wanted, they loved, they desired autonomy more than they wanted fellowship with God. And that led to the fall of the universe and all, the, all that's uh, come since then. It's a matter of loving the wrong things. Now, we live in, in a world that's marked by the fall, and so we often experience suffering that has nothing to do with what we want. No one gets cancer because they desired and loved the wrong things. But still, even still, oftentimes we experience individual suffering that's directly related to loving and desiring the wrong things. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, John has affirmed the church He's, he's affirmed them that they are the true church. He's reminded them of the inheritance they have, the forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake. They know they have fellowship with Christ. They've overcome the evil one. This is true of them. He's saying, look, the ones who went out from you, they were not the true church. You are the true church. This is your inheritance. But he wants them to know that the struggle isn't over. There's still a struggle for their hearts and souls. There's another way they might fall, and it's through how and what they love. So our outline this morning, first point, loving the world more than the Father. Second, loving what doesn't last. Third, instead, love what does last. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. John begins with a command, an imperative. John does not give a whole lot of commands. He's not like Paul, they have command every other sentence. There's only 10 commands in all of 1 John, so when he gives one, it's kind of an indication like, hey, listen up, this is important. And it's a very simple command. Do not love the world. So the first question we have to ask is, okay, well, what does the world refer to? John is telling us not to love this, so what is the world? Now, sometimes when John uses the 
word world simply just refers to the physical universe, literally, the way we think of it, you know, the globe. But oftentimes, he uses it in a specific way to refer to life of human society that's organized under the power of evil. So you look at the Gospel of John. The world is the place of spiritual darkness that Jesus, the light, came into. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The world is the place of spiritual darkness. Again, the world is the place that hates Jesus. Again, John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Then lastly, there's a number of passages that refer to the world as being under its own ruler, the devil. Again, the the world as John is using this is the organized kind of human society that is in opposition to God that lives under the ruling of the devil, of Satan. And so John is not calling us to, you know, hate good coffee or hate a beautiful sunset or hate the good things in life. He's saying, no, don't love those parts of the world that are in direct opposition to God. And even more, don't just not love the world that is in opposition to God. He's saying, don't love like the way the world loves. That's the whole point of verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So don't love the world. Don't love the parts of the world that are in opposition to God. Also, don't love like the world does. The desires of the flesh. What's that's just what our physical selves want, comfort, rest, relax, relaxation, fun, amusement. These aren't bad things. The problem is the desire. That's probably a weak word for what, a weak translation for what that's getting at. Some, the NIV, for instance, translate that as the lusts of the flesh. It's a craving, a longing. It's actually the same word that's used to um, translate in, 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 the, uh, in the Old Testament story where Israel grumbles against the Lord in the wilderness and they crave meat. It's the same word, crave. Where they craved, you know, they were not satisfied with God's provision, but they craved something else. It's passionate lust, a longing, a craving. It's loving the comforts and the pleasures of the body too much. It's a broken love. Next, he gives us the lust of the eyes. Again, the the cravings of the flesh are, are the things that arise from within us. We want these things naturally. The lust of the eyes is what comes to us from without. It's envy. When people have what we don't have, when they're experiencing what we are not experiencing, it's FOMO, fear of missing out. And social media has just given all kinds of ammunition to our ability to see what everyone else is doing and to want to be able to do that as well. Again, there's nothing wrong with seeing something someone has and thinking, oh, I'd like to do that. For instance, that looks like a great book. I'd like to read that book. That's right, everyone does, right? Nothing wrong with that. The, the lust of the eyes, though, is that itch. We're never satisfied with what we have. We get something, we're satisfied for a week, but quickly, it's not enough. Lust of the eyes. Again, it's a broken love. It's a broken desire. Then lastly, the pride of life. Again, pride might be a little bit of of an understatement. The idea is an arrogant boasting in what we have and what we've accomplished in our domain, our life. 
Again, there's nothing wrong with, you know, God made it so that we feel satisfaction when we do a good job. That's good. But there's a broken love here where, where we're boasting, we're arrogant. It's, it matters too much to us. What John is telling us is that these broken loves and desires, they characterize the way the world loves, characterizes the way the world operates. The world, because it's under, because it is the world, a place of darkness, it's characterized by its broken desires, these broken loves. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity gets at this so well. <laughs> in, in, in the way that only C.S. Lewis can. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease, but that's never been said in Vine Street Baptist Church. <laughs> that is, to watch a girl undressed on stage now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on the stage, then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? The way the world loves is broken. Secondary things are loved far beyond how they're meant to be loved. So John is saying, don't love the world. Don't love what it loves. Don't want to participate in the ways that it operates because it's broken. It's fundamentally distorted and perverted. Do not love the world. But John doesn't just tell us this. He gives us two reasons why. Again, he reasons with us. Why should we not love the world? Why should we not love like the world? Well, the first reason is because if you love the world, you cannot love the Father. Look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now when it says the love of the Father, grammatically that could mean either love for the Father or God's love itself, but contextually it makes most sense to see that as our love for God. And most translations will actually translate that. Whoever loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. We can't, if we're loving the world, there's not room left in our hearts to be able to love God as he deserves, as the ultimate, divine, transcendent, only God in the created world. We can't do both. Again, the problem is not the physical world. The problem is not the things that we grow attached to, the things that we love. It's that we are prone to loving them too much. Now, when we talk about love, we're getting into deep waters because we're talking about some of the primal motivations of the human heart. How are great things accomplished? It's, it's a matter of love. Why are great, why are great wicked acts done? It's, it's almost always a matter of love. Why do nations go to war against nations? It's because of what the leaders love and desire. So when we're getting into these matters of the heart, we're, we're in deep waters. We're in over our heads. But fortunately, we have a, a very wise guide in St. Augustine, the 4th century bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Augustine may have had one of the greatest minds of all human history, but he also had a very interesting coming-to-faith story. He uh, wandered far and wide. He engaged in a whole lot of sinful stuff, and he really was a rebel. And when he became a Christian in his early 30s, he used his experience as well as his God-given intellect to give incredible insight into how the human heart works, why we run after the things we run after. And Augustine says there's two ways we can love. We can love something as ultimate, 
which means we love it for what it is, not because it gives us something, not because we want to get something from it, because of what it is, it deserves our love. It requires our love. And then we can love things as secondary, and that we don't love them in and of themselves. We love them for the sake of something else. And Augustine argues we should only love God in that ultimate sense. <clears throat> for God alone is eternal, unchanging, always faithful. He's infinite, beyond our comprehension. He's good, true, and beautiful, and he alone is worthy of all our affection and devotion. There's nothing else. Everything that is created is contingent. It's going to end. It's, it's, it's temporary. Only God is worthy of that kind of love. We love God in that way. Everything else we love for the sake of God. The good things we have, we love them because they're gifts from God. How ridiculous would it be if Marco gave me a coffee maker and I loved it more than her? Even if it made a great cup of coffee, it'd be foolish. But even the most important things in our lives, like our family, we don't love them as ultimate things in themselves, but they are gifts from God. We love them because they image God. And because he's given you a spouse, or he's given you children, or he's given you friends. But love goes bad when we love secondary things as ultimate things. This is in Augustine's City of God. He says when the miser, you can think the Scrooge or the tightwad, when the miser prefers his gold to justice, it's through no fault of the gold but of the man. And so with every created thing, for though it may be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. Again, the problem isn't the creator of the world that God made. God made a good world. It's, it's that we can love things in a good way or we can love them in an evil way. We can love them as secondary things, which is how we ought to, or we can begin to love them in kind of an ultimate way. I have a memory from when I was in elementary school, maybe seven houses down from where I lived. There was a dad. I didn't know him. I didn't know his kids. But some point when I was in elementary school, he got this like new sporty car. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what kind of car it was. I'm not a car person. It may have been like a midlife crisis for him. They got this new car. And my memory is of this dad every Saturday out on his driveway washing that car meticulously. Like a couple hours, he's washing it. I, I, never, I never saw him play with his kids. They had a basketball hoop out front. I never saw him out front with his kids. I never saw him going for a walk with his wife. I saw him every Saturday washing that car. Now, I'm, I don't know, maybe he was a wonderful dad inside the house. I'm just making speculations here, Although there, but I know there have been dads that have loved things more than their kids. That's love gone bad. That's an obvious example. Like, you got to love your car to some extent, right? You got to care for it, uh, change the oil, keep maintenance. If you don't care for your car, it's not going to be around very long. But who would love their car more than their child? It's the brokenness of love. John tells us, don't love secondary things more than we should. Don't love the world. The great danger of the human heart is not only that we'd love secondary things more than we ought to love them, like a dad loving his car more than he loves his kids, but the, honestly, the greatest danger is that we'll love too little the one who is worthy of all of our love. And that our love for God will be usurped by something else. That's the greatest danger. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. John is warning this church, this church. He says, look, you survived the false teachers. You didn't give up the gospel. 
You survived a schism and the discouragement of seeing friends and family leave. But there's still a way you can fall. Satan can still destroy you if he subverts your love. And we too have to listen to this warning. The world isn't just trying to get us to do stuff. You know, as Christians, a lot of times we focus on, the, you know, don't do things, don't smoke and drink and dance and all these things. The world isn't trying to get us to do stuff. It's after our hearts. And if it gets our hearts, it doesn't care what we do. It's, that's game, set, match. Over. Do not love the world. Because if you love the world, you cannot love God. Why would you love a car more than you'd love God? It's the first reason not to love the world. Don't love the world because you cannot love God as ultimate and love anything else as ultimate. The second reason not to love the world is that the world doesn't last. Look at the first half of verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. When John says it's passing away, he means it in two different senses. First, it's, it's literally passing away. It is physically passing away. What exists today will not be here in 100 years, most likely. Buddha got this part right, the Buddha, and that loving what is temporary, as if it is God, is, is going to end in tragic heartbreak because we're looking for something from a temporary item that can never give that. Again, our guide, St. Augustine, says the best, referring to, again, temporary, secondary things. He says, for they go their way and they are no more. And they rend the soul with desires that can destroy it. For the soul longs to be one with the things it loves and to rest in them. But in them is no place for rest because they do not abide. We try to find rest in things that aren't God, and of course it's going to end in tragedy because these things don't remain. They, they, they evaporate. The morning's mist. When Michael Jordan turned 50, ESPN had a fascinating article about him. Here's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, basketball player of all time turning 50. <laughs> it's debated, but, you know. Here he is turning 50. You know, what a fascinating time when... You know, uh, what is he up to? How does he reflect on his career? And it's a, it's, 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 it's a long-form read. It'll take you a while, but it is worth reading. It is so, so interesting. Again, Michael Jordan is considered one of the best, if not the best, basketball players who's also infamous for his competitive nature. And then he would drive himself, described as a rage, this desire to win at all costs. But there's this one poignant moment highlighting how transitory even Jordan's accomplishments were. Again, the, the article reads like this, aging means losing things, and not just eyesight and flexibility. It means watching the accomplishments of your youth be diminished, maybe in your own eyes through perspective, maybe in the eyes of others through cultural amnesia. When Jordan walked off the court for the last time, he must have believed that nothing could ever diminish what he'd done. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for the shining monument he built to be chipped away and eroded. Wonderful writing, by the way. But Jordan gave all of himself to being the best. I mean, he, he gave his heart, soul, mind, and strength to being the best basketball player in the world, and he achieved it. 
Well, he's the best of all time. That's debated, right? But in his time, I, he, you know, he was the best. And it passed away. It ended. It only lasted a few years. John is pleading with us, don't give yourself to things that won't last. That will be over in a few years. Now I want to give a caveat, because we could think about this wrongly. Jordan's problem was not that he worked hard. It was not that he was highly disciplined. It was not that he was highly successful. His problem is what he worked for. God is not honored by laziness or mediocrity when we can do better. An example of how to do this right would be someone like Johann Sebastian Bach. One of the greatest musical composers of all time. He was a devout Christian. He wrote much of his music for the church. And when he would finish a page of music that he was satisfied with, at the bottom he'd write three initials, S-D-G, which is an acronym for a Latin phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. And so Johann Sebastian Bach, again, was one of the greatest musical composers of all time. He reached those same rarefied levels of excellence and success, but he was doing it for God. And that abides, whereas Jordan was doing it again to be the best. And that passed away. So John says, don't give yourselves to things that literally will not be here in 30 years, that literally won't matter in 30 years. But there's a second sense, a second sense in which John is saying the world is passing away and that it's spiritually passing away. Again, we've been talking about the world as, as, as a kind of organization of human society that is opposed to God. And the world in that sense has its own set of values that compete with the values of the kingdom of God. So in the world, what matters is money, power, and fame. But Jesus came and said, in his kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Likewise, in the world, the greatest value is happiness. Do what you must to be happy. As long as you're happy, nothing else matters. But Jesus came and said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. And likewise, the world places great confidence in what we can see. Whereas the scriptures and Jesus were so clear that some of the most important realities are unseen. The world and the kingdom of God are in opposition, but the time of the world is passing away. This is what John said in chapter 2, verse 8. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The world as a spiritual entity, as an organization opposed to God, is passing away because when Jesus died on a cross... And humiliation and weakness and foolishness in the world's understanding of value. When he gave his life as a substitute for sinners and then rose again from the grave, nothing changed visibly in the world. The sky didn't become purple, right? Gravity wasn't reversed. But the fundamental spiritual realities in the cosmos were fundamentally changed. The power of Satan over the world was irreversibly weakened. And it was given an expiration date. And the kingdom of God is steadily advancing, oftentimes through weakness, in ways that are unseen. That's what glorifies God the most through little churches like Vine Street Baptist Church. All around the world, the kingdom is advancing. And the foundations of the kingdom of darkness are cracking. It's passing away. And one day when Christ comes back, it will be eradicated. 
Don't give yourself to something that's passing away. Don't love something that is passing away. Instead, give yourself completely to the one who will last forever. This brings us to our last point. Instead, love what does last. Look at the second half of verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I'm, ca- I'm, I'm phrasing this in love language, whereas John uses obedience language. But John is clear to us that love and obedience are two sides of the same coin for Christ. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. To love Jesus, to love God, is to obey him. So it, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Love what will last. Now let's do a quick review. What will not last? What will not abide? Well, John has told us the desires of the flesh, the comforts that we experience, the experiences we have. It's so funny. My generation is drunk on experience. It's like people will get a job so they can travel and, and acquire experiences. It's just interesting. But those won't last. Your awesome trip to Thailand where you got to try all the local cuisine, it's not going to last. The lust of our eyes, you know, when we win that comparison game, we finally achieve what our neighbors have, it's not going to last. The pride of life, our accomplishments, what we have, those aren't going to last. What John is telling us is that anything that's done out of love for anything other than God, it won't abide. Even if it's an impressive thing. Nobel Peace Prizes, if they're not done out of love for God, they won't last. Grammy Awards, PhDs, if they're not done out of love for God, they're going to fade away. What will abide? Again, let's remember Bach, soli deo gloria, what is done for the glory of God, what is done out of love for God, it will abide. And here's the amazing thing, great things that are not done out of love for God will not abide, but small things, the smallest thing that is done out of love for God will abide. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. Giving a cup of cold water it requires no preparation. It is the most basic act of hospitality, but even that, if it's done in the name of Christ out of love for him, that'll abide for all eternity. That's an encouragement to us. For some of us who can't do as much as we wanted to or some of us who feel like we don't have much to offer, you don't need to do great things. Anything you do out of love for God is going to abide for all eternity if it's glorifying to him. Anything we do in the name of Christ, even small things, that's the beautiful thing of Jesus Christ's kingdom. It makes it great. It's not the impact. It's if we've done it for him. Small things done for the sake of Jesus are great. You may know the name Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in the 50s. He had a, um, his journals, uh, he was a martyr. I'll get to that in a second. His journals were taken, edited, put together in a book by his wife, who uh, uh, survived him, in a book called The Shadow of the Almighty. And that was hugely influential in me as a high school student, understanding what it means to be a Christian. If you're not familiar with Jim Elliott, he was a, a young missionary who went to South America. And the first time he made face-to-face contact with a particular uh, South American tribe he was trying to reach with the gospel, he and the three missionaries who went him were murdered. 
Now, from when you just look at the facts of that, it doesn't sound very promising. If you read Jim Elliott's journals, you realize the guy was brilliant. I mean, he was an incredible writer. All kinds of intellectual gifts. He had leadership gifts. He was motivated, disciplined. And he's dead at 26. Never planted any churches. Didn't start any organizations. He didn't publish any books. Didn't even have a conversion. Be easy to look at that and say, what a waste. What a failure. But of course, there are probably thousands of missionaries who are overseas now because of the story of Jim Elliot. And there are certainly tens and hundreds of thousands of Christians like myself who were massively influenced by a picture of what fallen Christ with all your heart can look like. In Jim Elliot's journal, he had this incredibly profound line, especially in view of what would happen to him. But in college, he wrote this. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And considering that he would go on to give his life, there's a whole lot of profundity in that statement. He's like, look, you're not a fool if you give your life what you're going to lose regardless in order to gain something that abides forever. Love what will abide. Guard your hearts. Don't love the things that are going to be gone tomorrow. May we so love God that we see whatever we give up to follow him as worthless in comparison to fellowship with him. Amen. Let's pray. God, may you protect our hearts. We confess we so often do love the world. And we love like the world, and it can be so attractive to us. But it doesn't abide. Only you are worthy of our hearts. Only you are worthy of all our love. Help us to offer it to you every day. Help us to grow deep into that. May we take the same perspective as those like Jim Elliot who saw with clarity the things of eternity. May we give our lives to what will last, the kingdom of God and the glory of God. In whatever context you call us to, in the workforce, in our studies, in ministry, in missionary work, in our neighborhoods, may we give ourselves to what will last, to the glory of your holy name. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.